Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. couple of very quick announcements before we jump in. I think you're really going to love this episode. Mike's journey is so inspiring. If you have ever thought about leaving your current role behind to do something fun or work with plants or just do something that's uh, in line with your passions, then I think you'll really enjoy listening to Mike's story. And our discussion, we talk about a thing called the Earthworkers Program, which is a real life-changing educational program that I went on last year. It's run by the For the Love of Bees Charitable Trust. It's a real deep dive into the whole way that plants work and uh, all about um, the modern way of kind of urban farming. And if you're interested in that space, even if you're just interested in growing food at home or just to hearing about how plants can save the world, then I'd really encourage you to check it out. Their next course is on the 16th to the 20th of May in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. Uh, you can find out more just by Googling Earthworkers Program or Googling For the Love of Bees. Uh, and I'll also put a link to it in the show notes as well. Quick shout out to Climactic, the Climactic Collective, which is the podcast network that Good You Can Do is part of. Uh, If you're interested in more amazing climate-focused podcasts from the Australasian podcasting community, go and check out climactic.fm and you can check out the Climactic podcast itself as well. And one last comment, Uh, this episode was recorded while we were holidaying in Auckland and the mic quality is pretty average. I didn't have my usual mic with me, I was just recording it on the Bluetooth headphones. So apologize that it's not really top notch, but I think you can still get the message and most of the time it's Mike talking anyway. So you'll be able to hear his wonderful story and uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Mike King. Mike, thank you so much for taking a bit of time to jump on the podcast. Mike is a uh, professional arborist by by background, um, but has recently been on a bit of a transition. Uh, he's um, transformed a previously, uh, can I say, kind of abandoned space at Otaki College into a thriving uh, urban farm and garden, uh, which we'll talk a little, talk a bit more about. And uh, Mike's also uh runs foraging tours around the wellington botanical gardens and also in uh on the capital coast where mike lives where you can go on a tour with him and learn all about native plants and edible plants that you might have just previously walked past and not really thought much about which it's a super cool way to engage with engage with nature and i'm super excited to hear more about that today um but mike we we originally met at the earthworkers course or through the earthworkers program uh, last year in 2021, which is a regenerative horticulture learning experience put on by For the Love of Bees, where I guess to, to describe it in a small way, they, they teach you how to grow a, a whole lot of plants and vegetables uh, in a really small space, like super hyper-intensive farming uh, in a completely regenerative biology-first organic way. Uh, and it was quite an experience going through that. And maybe that's a good place to start. I was going to say, you, what attracted you to doing that Earthworkers program in the first place, coming from that arborist background? Mm. Morning, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having Morning. me. Thanks, Mike. Uh, good question. I I was very nervous about starting this project at Otaki College, and I was looking at the the weedy fields that lay before me and had really no clue about uh, growing veggies and, and those sorts of things. So I thought, 
um, yeah, th- this could be something that would help. And it, it really did. I was really glad I went on the course. It uh, gave me a lot of answers for a lot of questions. Uh, I was surprised, though, because I have uh, previously done quite a, quite a lot of training. I'm a, a German qualified arborist and a German qualified landscape gardener because um, I have a German wife and I've spent 10 years in Germany. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought I had knowledge on um, soil science and soil health, uh, but but not really. Um, I, I did learn a lot about yeah, bacteria and biology and, yeah, it was it was really useful. What led you to finding that space at, at Otaki College? You know, like it, coming into that situation, even though you didn't, you know, maybe didn't feel like you had all the tools or knowledge to make it work, but uh, but you, you, I guess you saw the space and thought, man, that, that could be better utilised. Or how did that opportunity come about mm-hmm. for you? Can I back it up a bit more? And just, Please. Just yeah. uh, I'll just start from from the beginning. When we came back from Germany, uh, it's going on eight years now, I suppose. I thought to myself, I can't keep doing tree work five days a week. It's great fun. Days go by really quickly, but it's wearing my body out. And two, three days would be fine, but five is just too much. So I started growing oyster mushrooms in a shipping container out in front of my house. It was great fun. Learned it all on YouTube. Fascinating stuff. Learned pretty quickly, though, that the daily grind of growing mushrooms is not really where it's at for me. Yeah, they go off quite quickly, and you've got to sell that product, and uh, it was interesting though. And I started selling them at markets, and I started selling them to restaurants, and so I got to know one restaurant in particular called Fifty uh, Fifty down Paraparaumu Beach. The chef there, Helen Turnbull, she was uh, she's a very passionate chef. She does a lot of degustation menus, small portion, experimental cuisine sort of thing. And one day she asked me if I could find her green walnuts to pickle them. And I said, yeah, no worries. But how about trying black walnuts or Japanese walnuts? You want to have a go with those? And she said, oh, anything that's edible, bring it in and we have a play with it. So I did that. Basically, I dedicated every Wednesday to foraging for her. And that was that was a lot of fun. I, I was really amazed, actually, by how many plant products I could bring in. I like to talk about plant products because each plant has more than one product. If you think about a pine tree, it has uh, the pine needles, the, the pine cones, the, the pine pollen sacs, the the pollen itself or resin. So, you know, a pine tree has five or six products already. And I was really surprised by how many plant products I could bring in. It was, it was a, yeah, for at least the first year, every week, I would bring in at least three new plant products. It worked really well with my tree work. I would get out to a lot of lifestyle blocks and um, really nice properties, go down all those long gravel driveways that no one ever goes down. And there's some beautiful lifestyle blocks here on the coast. And the, and the people were really interested in what I was doing, and they always they were always willing to let me pick a few berries, and uh, it was great. So I did this for for two years, working for her, uh, a lot of fun, learned a lot, and then I started I, somewhere along the lines. I started posting things on Instagram, got some uh, interest from gin distilleries. Um, they're really gin's popular at the moment. They're all looking for new native botanicals to, you know, give their gin the edge in the in the market and. And they want everything dehydrated. So I started dehydrating things, realizing that uh, I started getting fascinated by the fact that some things intensify their magic and some things lose it completely. And and somewhere along the lines, I realized that uh, we can expand on our native spice range. If you think about New Zealand native spices, it's horopito leaf, kawakawa leaf, and that's about it. But we can, yeah, we I realized some that yeah, we can actually do more than that. It was a couple of interesting discoveries, but well, we can talk about that later. But um, so then... Um, I, uh, oh yeah, so I started working for gin distilleries, trying to find them large quantities. They, they, 
almost, I spent like a year running around finding them botanicals, just just um, running around trying to find them samples. And that was really interesting too. I was fascinated by all of this. Somewhere along the lines, I realised that I, I don't really like gin as a as a way to showcase a flavour. It's, I mean, gin is what it is, and you know, it's like blending and um, complementing flavours and, and all that sort of thing. But as a way to showcase an, an individual flavour or an individual spice, I didn't really think like it was it was doing them justice. Uh, so I got a bit frustrated with that and. Somewhere along the lines, I realised that ice cream is a great way to showcase flavours. Cream and sugar just carry a lot. I mean, it doesn't work for every flavour, but it did work for a lot of the native flavours that I was trying to showcase. And so I started uh, adding that to my foraging tours. I, I didn't really feel for a long time. I never really felt comfortable doing foraging tours because I didn't really feel like I had enough to offer uh, to make it a good tour. And then once I started adding ice cream to the tours, people walked away with a smile on their face. Like maybe it was just the, the sugar and cream, but. It worked every time. Uh, so I'd add, add ice cream to my tours, and that was great. And then uh, at some stage, uh, I stumbled into being on a country calendar episode, which was which was bizarre, but uh, also a lot of fun. It's brilliant, um, too. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes for everyone. It was uh, the 2021 season episode 13. If anyone wants to go. Google it, you can just look up Light King Country Calendar, but I'll link to it in the show notes as well, and I definitely recommend it. Just watching you climb out the trees uh, was crazy cool reminded me of this book i read called the wild trees all about people climbing redwoods it was always really cool to see someone actually doing what they talked about in that book and practice mm. so sorry it's a bit of a segue but uh i, was I actually wrote reading. that guy a letter uh when i was living in germany i read that book uh the giant the red giants or something like that from Stephen yeah. something like that and i was so inspired by it at the time that i uh wrote him a letter asking if, if we can come over and give him a hand or something and he actually replied i was i didn't expect that either this, uh and just you know, uh, steve steve sillett is that yeah steve yeah he yeah. Wrote, us, wrote us an email back saying uh just recommending a few german scientists who were who were doing interesting work on douglas fir trees if we would uh prefer to work with him because he's not he's not taking on volunteers he just works with his students because he works at the university but yeah uh yeah anyway um so where, where was I? Uh, started working for gin distilleries, started making do these foraging tours, went on country calendar, blah, 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 that's right. And then, um, well, uh, I've, I've started noticing over the years that um, it would be good to get out of tree work in the long run. I, I only really enjoyed, to do with tree work, I only really enjoyed the climbing. Uh, mm. Tree work is awesome. Um, climbing is, is a lot of fun. There's been a lot of development over the last 15 years with with techniques and tools that you can use to so just the the yeah, it's, it's always been a developing industry and, and it's been a lot of fun to be a part of that and to watch it grow and and see the tools and, and co constantly learning new things and that was always great hmm. but uh new zealand's not that nice for tree climbing to be honest i mean germany was a lot of big old oak trees in the middle of cities nice big trees and it felt more like more like um, extreme sport rather than a job. Whereas when you come back to NZ, it's just smashing out pines, macs and gums and poplars and shoving them through the chipper. Right. Uh, and you're never really pruning a, a big old tree. And uh, so, so yeah, it, it just kind of the grind of New Zealand tree work has been getting to me over the years. And I have been, have, have been looking for a way to get out of tree work and uh, never really saw a way to fully get out of it. And I was happy doing a couple of days. That's fine. But uh, one day I was, oh, so here we go. So the, the mayor follows me on Instagram, the mayor of the Kapiti Coast. And uh, he 
he's been a fan of mine for a while and he, he asked me if I wanted to come along to a food hui uh, organised by the council after COVID regarding food sovereignty and food security on the Kapiti Coast. The Kapiti Coast used to be a real a real hub for growing. It's great weather up here and the soils are really nice if you hit a little bit further than then why can I that Otaki and live in the soils get really nice uh, and the weather's a bit better. It used to be, yeah, it used to be considered, uh, before my time, I don't really know it like this, but uh, it used to be considered the fruit bowl of, of Wellington. And you mm-hmm. can still see scattered greenhouses all around, old broken down greenhouses all around the place if you get out a bit. So I, I tagged along. I didn't really know what I was doing at this food hui, but uh, I tagged along anyway. And uh as they, everyone was introducing themselves, there was one lady there, Kate Lindsay. She uh, works at Otaki College. Uh, she's a newly employed learning support coordinator, so a social worker at the college. And she mentioned that, uh, well, she came along really because she had discovered this uh, rundown derelict uh, horticultural facility at Otaki College. And she was really keen on getting it back up and running. And uh, when I heard that, uh, I had heard rumours of the place, but I had uh, never seen it before. I jumped on the opportunity and uh, mentioned that I'd be really keen to be a part of it. And so we uh, worked together to acquire funding and uh, the, the coast, uh, the council organised a few uh, like speed dating events for funders and fundees, which I was really fascinated that that's how it works. So you just have 10 minutes at each table and everyone sort of, you both do your spiel and then figure out where if you fit in with each other and then move on to the next table. It was just a great way to, yeah, figure out how we can get funding. And it really worked. Um, we realised somewhere while we were there, we, we both realised that there are, is a lot of opportunity for funding at the moment in this this area. And uh, and we acquired funding uh, a little bit from the Kapiti Coast Council and then uh, from the New Zealand Community Trust, so um, Pokies money. Did you remember what your kind of pitch was? like? In- um, quite early on, we went to the uh, to the remake, remakery in, in, I guess, Lower Hut or Upper Hut. Com- which sure, is like the Common Unity. Um, which is yeah. in uh, kind of like the Ramwick Lower Hut area. And I can put a yeah. link to that in the show notes as well. It's an incredible setup. We went there, and, and I was really inspired by them. Um, I really, uh, I thought this what a what a what a great facility. And uh, but when I was chatting to the the lady who who first first started it, I asked her. It was, it was quite an important question to me. I asked it. Did you have like a did you have a plan when you first started? Or has it grown into the plan or how, how to, because I really don't have a plan. I'm just sort of like stumbling along here and taking the opportunities as they come to me. And she said, no, it, the, the the plan is growing. You know, the, the vision is growing and, and it has to do with the people that come along as well and, and, and the direction that they want to take it. It's not all just, you don't, you're not going to have the vision that's going to, what it's going to end up being from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that was comforting to me. And, uh, and so I've been working with that sort of philosophy. I don't really, yeah. Uh, haven't really had a, um, an end vision with with the project, but it's um, but I'm actually really happy with with the direction that it's going and, and the ideas that I've been having. So so we long met. Uh, yeah, we started going to these funding things. Uh, we found funding. We've been working with that for about the last eight months. Funding will seems like it will always be an issue. Uh, future funding, which is which is frustrating because it's it's it. Uh, well, not just the security for me, but also um, you don't know how much you should throw yourself at something, and if you don't know, if you don't have security. So that's that's been a bit of a, a frustrating side of things. But mm. um, but I think there will we will get we will get future funding, and we will proceed. Um, Especially yeah. you can show what you've done so far, right? And I'd I'd love to to dig in more, and we definitely will dig in more to that project. Um, 
I was going to ask you about it sort of towards the end, but since you've been you're speaking into this space about kind of that transition, I'm really keen to dig into that a little bit in sure. terms of, I've done a few episodes with people who have talked about transitioning from uh, one type of kind of career into another. And I'm really interested in the space of, you know, finding what good looks like for you and mm, having nice. having the courage to explore that. And, and, and I guess the, uh, the confidence to feel that you, that you deserve to, to be looking for something that, that works for you, like a, a, a daily setup that you enjoy. The kind of journey that I went on personally a couple of years ago of leaving uh, property world uh, kind of life to wanting to work more in a, in a climate space. And I guess from other people I've interviewed and, and my own experience, it can be a really challenging process, right? You can be you can you can be go through moments of doubting yourself and being unsure of what you're doing and not having a plan and not knowing what that future is going to look like. And so I was going to ask you, you know, what did your sort of first steps look like in kind of, I know you mentioned the oyster mushrooms, but what was that process like of kind of understanding that it, that it definitely was time for a change? Because a lot of people will be doing a job, feel like it's not right for them, tough on their body, um, but, you know, but still just keep doing it and not take steps to actually make a change. Was there anything, yeah, is there anything that, that worked for you to kind of help you make that transition or, or things that you would suggest to other people to, to think about if they're in a space where they're kind of maybe where you were with the arborist work five days a week and thinking, gosh, this doesn't feel like a long-term sustainable future? I was feeling with tree work, um, I was really feeling the pressure to get out of it for a few reasons. And it wasn't just because it was really tiring my body out. It was also super dangerous. I mean, I started having, like maybe it was through the fatigue of being tired, but started to have regular accidents, pretty crazy accidents. Um, and, and and some of the trees that I get sent up to do are pretty crazy. And I don't know, maybe it's just getting older, having more accidents. And I mean, I have a, I have a daughter too. So there's just this thoughts of the craziness of what you're doing, just sort of slowly eat away at you. And uh, I would start to dread the, the the jobs, thinking about lying in, lying in bed, thinking about tomorrow's crazy trees. Those sorts of those sorts of things were were definitely pushing me to uh, to find a, a way out or a new direction. And yeah, and as I was getting older, the the physical side of things I found quite fascinating. Just the recovery time. So in the past, I could do could do five days a week, and then just need Saturday, Sunday, do something quiet, and I'll be sweet again on Monday. But after a while, a really really hard day in the trees. Geez, you'd need two days to to feel normal afterwards, and and that's not really sustainable. So. There was quite a, a a bit of pressure I put on myself to to find to find a new direction, uh, but I knew that I'd, I had time and I still enjoyed the tree work to some sides of things. I mean, it was I was self-employed. I could uh, delegate my time how I wanted. I could work with whoever I wanted. Uh, I was really happy with the with the group of boys I was I was spending time with. Um, every day was every tree job's a puzzle. It's always exciting. You've got beautiful properties you're working in, nice views, those sorts of things. But yeah, I knew that I had a bit of time on my hands, but it was not going to be sustainable. So uh, first of all, I, I, it was easy. The transition, or, or the, the not say the transition, but the I was flexible enough to to have time to to look for something else because I was self-employed. And uh, as a as a self-employed climber, you can earn okay money. So I only really needed to work two three days a week. So I had a couple more days where I could start to play with other things without feeling guilty and so I did that for a long time I guess a couple of issues with with doing something like that is uh, I had to you'd have to I didn't really have a clear plan but I would I've just started following my interests 
which is all well and good. But if you're looking for business, uh, if you're doing this in the direction of business, then at some stage you will come the point of should you invest in this machine or this tool or whatever or not. And uh, with the mushrooms, I definitely sunk quite a bit of money into setting up this mushroom business that I just sort of flogged off um, quite quite spontaneously. Uh, and and then lots of those sorts of issues constantly popping up. And I guess just seeing um, as as the time carried on, uh, seeing different business opportunities pop up, like uh, when I realised that I could create a, uh, that, that there is opportunity to expand on the spice range, I was like, well, should I be focusing on large scale spice harvesting or, or not? Or once I started making ice creams and realised that I could make a, a New Zealand native ice cream range, I was like, well, should I start making large-scale ice cream or what am I doing? So that's that's been a side of things which, which I found I didn't really think think about too much but has probably um, been quite a big a big issue. I guess what I did that I, that I found good was I just have just been following my interests. It's, just, it's potentially um, selfish views but or selfish um motivation but yeah really just just following what I've been interested in um and that, that can be hard to think about what are you interested in as well I mean you, I was interested in spices but was I really interested in large-scale harvesting of, of native spices you kind of have to try it out first uh have a little play with it so that's what I've been doing and that's sort of how I stumbled into the into this this project at the college uh and yeah that's that's probably the only well, it's that's not really amazing advice, but it's. Uh, no, I think it's. I think it's awesome cool. advice, Mike. I think it's really pertinent because I, I, people that I speak to, whether they're friends or family or people that contact me through the podcast work, who struggle with this, uh, often feel like they need to solve that question of what they're going to do before they leave the current thing. Right? They're like, mm-hmm. well, well, what would I do if I didn't do this? What what job would I have? And it's really hard to answer that question when you're in the grind of whatever current career you're pursuing uh, if you don't create some space to play and experiment and meet different people in different spheres and get exposed to different things then how are you really going to know so I take that as a really important sign that yeah you don't have to have the perfect answer and you won't know exactly what you're going to enjoy or like until you test things out and, and experiment um, mm. really really cool point about you know the the questions that you get as soon as you start playing with something, it's like, right, do we take this to the next level? And and I think there's there's a learning there too, right? Like you start experimenting with the ice cream and it's like, right, I could start like mass producing this and create an ice cream factory and invest and, you know, have to find the money to do that. Um, but I really like what you've done where you've taken that ice cream learning uh, and the spice and native plant learning kind of combined it in these foraging tours, which allow you to keep both things quite small scale, but still meet people. And and uh, so there's, I guess, you can be creative with what those solutions look like is what, is what that says to me that you can, mm. it doesn't have to go down that uh, mass production line necessarily. Uh, you can try and think a little bit more outside of the box into how you can join those interests up and, and create value for people. That's, yeah, that's that's been a really interesting part of it too for me is uh, along this journey has been that I, I discovered that I really like like being creative and um, that's been has become really in the last maybe in the last year has become a, an a important guiding arrow is that I actually I'll enjoy being creative and I'm not that interested in business and, and um, marketing and sales I really just enjoy experimenting and uh, I've been I guess the underlying interest of mine is nature 
we'll put a put a stamp on that one. I'm really interested in in the the diversity of of nature and and, and all those sorts of things. Just, there's so much. It's so so quirky and weird nature, and uh, just try. I, I enjoy showing that to people, and I've always enjoyed for my friends when we've just been hanging out, just going into the garden and blabbering on about the weird facts I know about plants and um and so finding new ways and, and cool tools to to help show that to people has has probably been um yeah the biggest biggest side of things for me. I mean that's why I, I guess I got into the mushrooms without really realizing it. it's just because I found them fascinating and I wanted to show everyone these weird weird pink pink oyster mushrooms and stuff. So but uh, but yeah, but always the question comes in. Yeah, well, but it's a business, so you've got to try and make money, and, and that always. Is, how do I pay the bills? How did you, one question I want to ask was how did you develop the knowledge of what is edible and what's not in terms of what what might be poisonous, what might be safe to eat? How did you mm. build up that that inherent yeah database of knowledge in your own mind? Uh, well, I guess I already had a bit of a a good starting point. So I, you know, I've been working in. In the, I say the green industry. That's what the Germans say. Uh, in the green industry for, you know, the last fifteen years. So I knew a lot about plants already, I suppose. And then it was just finding whether or not they're edible. I mean, I used the, the resources, the books that were available, which is a few. And then um, once I chewed through those books, uh, we got to the point where a lot of what I was interested in learning about, you're not going to find in books anymore. So. Uh, what I do now is I use a database called Plants for a Future, which is my, my go-to really. And it's not a it's not an ID page, so it doesn't have any photos, but it's it's basically tells you about all the uses of plants. It's a British database, um, so but it does have a lot of NZ native stuff in it, surprisingly. It's a really good database. And uh, yeah, once you know the Latin name of the plant, then you just type that in and it just it just tells you all of the uses for the plant. So if it has any yeah, medicinal uses, culinary uses, if it's good for dyeing or if the timbers aren't any good for anything. And for me, what's really nice is it's got one section on the, um, if there's any known hazards within the plant. And so that's, that's sort of where I start. Yeah, have a look at that. And then if there's no known hazards in the plant, then I feel a bit more confident about playing around with it. Cool. Mm. Cool. I also needed a, one thing I guess I should mention, uh, when I first started doing foraging for restaurants, I realized quite early on that I need a food safety certificate to do this, so commercial foraging. And uh, it, that was an interesting rabbit hole to dive down. There's not many foragers around. And uh, so I um, yeah, approached the council and uh, to start off with, they said, no, that's not possible. You can't bring wild mushrooms into a restaurant. And I was, we started having an argument with the lady at the council that, uh, well, but yeah, but you wouldn't want to live in a world where you can't have wild mushrooms on the on the menu. and she was like, but you can grow them, you can cultivate them, and then, oh, but not these ones, and blah, blah, blah. So uh, in the end, I luckily, uh, my uh, the officer, the, the food safety officer that dealt with me ended up being another lady, and uh, she was okay with it. Just had to find another forager in New Zealand that was, was already registered and find out what type of food safety certificate that person had, and then, then the council would feel much more comfortable about me doing it. And then I was privately audited by an, uh, a private company, and uh, they they didn't know what questions to ask me. They'd never dealt with a forager before. And in the end, we decided I won't harvest blackberries or gorse flowers or leafy greens from public land because we can't because I can't guarantee it hasn't been sprayed with Roundup, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that 
that was all good. That was basically the only rules really, except for uh, traceability. So I had to be able to say where I picked what and have that categorized or, or um, documented. So in the end, really though, I never really harvested much. I'm not really, I'm not picking things for restaurants anymore, but when I was, uh, I wasn't, I basically stopped harv- harvesting on public land. It, it was always too awkward. There's not many places you can harvest. Like, yeah, I'm not allowed to harvest on the on the, sh- the beachfront, and I'm not allowed to harvest, or the shoreline, I mean, I'm not allowed to harvest in parks and reserves. So you basically, public land, I'm only really allowed on the roadside. Yeah. And you can't really do that because of, of the hazards of, of being next to cars and, and pollution from cars and things like that. I mean, you, you could maybe on some gravel road down a, um, yeah, a, a quiet road, maybe you could do some harvesting. I'm not sure, but. Really smart to be able to share that learning and, and your tours, though, right? Like, it's such a nice way to. I guess segue into that where you can still use that knowledge to add value where you're kind of getting you know it looks like it sounds like the the establishment's making it very hard to, to use these public spaces which have so much promise um so kudos to you for you know creating the tours and i should just mention at this point that if people are interested go to findersedersforaging.com where you can book a tour with mike what do people get out of those tours what do they come away from saying and what what are you trying to impart to people when they come along? Yeah, so I I don't see myself as a walking encyclopedia of of plant knowledge. I really uh, there's lots of plants I don't know, and there's lots of plants I'm not really interested in either. So I've never really bothered learning them all. I guess what I do is I tell a story about my experience over the last three years, what I've been up to, which involves yeah experiences like dealing with the council when trying to become a registered professional forager. And in my experiences with working with distilleries, and and I never, I don't, I didn't really like it. Hey, eh? I, I was a bit disappointed. I felt, I felt a bit, uh, I got a bit disappointed in the whole marketing side of things, and I just kind of felt like the, that businesses they were, weren't didn't have the same passion that I did about about promoting these plant products. It was all just about trying to sell something, and and, and as soon as they had their product, then it was all about the kilo price and how much cheaper we can make it. And, and I, I couldn't justify my prices anymore. And I realized I'd have to start dealing with employees and going down that rabbit hole. So, so I do, I mean, obviously we do talk a lot about plants and in, in, in my experiences with using them. I've never, for, I never really considered myself a chef either. I, I haven't, you know, I don't do much. I mean, I do cook, but I don't, I don't use the, a lot of these ingredients. A lot of them are quite novelty products for, for high-end restaurants. And, uh, and and so I never really mucked around much with with pickling and preserving either, which which is a lot of a lot of what foraged products are. And, but I never really liked them. I never really liked the smell of vinegar in in my house cooking away. It just never really been my jam. Uh, so for a long time, yeah, I never really wanted to do tours because a lot of, I get asked all these questions, which I, I mean I know that this plant's edible and that plant's not edible, but I never really knew what I'd do with it. And it was only really through working with ice cream. Um, and finding a way that I enjoyed using these spices or these these plant products that um, that I felt mm, more connected to the whole thing, uh, and, and and also found creativity in it as well that I can now dive down more rabbit holes and and um, and just enrich my own knowledge. Uh, so so there's that. So so I guess what it is is I'm telling a story and I'm talking a lot about different plants and my experiences with them. A lot of my stories are also Helen's stories from her restaurant and how she used them and that and I tell those stories about having a bit of a glimpse into into her world because that's a that's a fascinating side of things. Is just seeing how a chef works with with plant products is is really fascinating. Like I mean, one day this is a great this is a great little story. So I went in there and she got me to try this weird powder 
And uh, it turns out it was she had juiced carrots and then she'd taken the, the pulp from the carrot, fermented it, dehydrated it, ground it into a powder, and then that was the powder. So it's, it's fermented carrot pulp. Um, and it was zingy and weird. And so, I mean, in the future, I could imagine, you know, diving down the rabbit hole of fermenting stuff. It seems to really m- make amazing flavors, but, mm. but I haven't yet. But, um, yeah, so, oh, and then there's the ice creams, and, and that's, 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 that's always great fun. I, I found with the ice creams, I, I've been on a few foraging tours in the past, and I was always a little bit, I'd walk away a bit disappointed. We'd make like a salad or we'd nibble on some seaweed or something, and it was okay, but never really walked away thinking, I'm totally going to go and try this now. It was always sort of like, yeah, that was interesting, but whatever. Like for a good example was harakiki seeds. If you nibble on harakiki, so New Zealand flax seeds, little yeah. black surfboard seeds, if you nibble on those, they're kind of mild. You don't really taste much. They say they're high in omegas. I never really cared. And I've never really been interested in the medicinal side of things either. But with ice cream, if you take half a cup of those seeds, toast them in a pan, grind them up, soak them in the base mix of the ice cream for 24 hours, you really get this nutty, musky flavor. It's like a unique musky flavor out of the out of the ice cream. And you can smell that flavor. You can smell it when you walk past the, the bush when the when the seed pods are ripening. They'll crack open and, and you, you get this waft, this waft of this musky f- smell that just when you walk past it, it just stops you in your tracks and brings you straight back to the ice cream. And so people walk away from the ice cream tasting and I, th- I think they walk away and excited and inspired to to play with them themselves and that's probably been that that's been a real highlight for me it's so nice and just fostering that connection between all of us and the plants that we walk past every day but don't stop to appreciate i think that's of so much value man i, I appreciate you you doing that work it's something that can add so much value like I, i've got so much learning to do in this space and when we went to the Earthworkers course, such a noob, they had just had like leaves of kawakawa and they had, uh, they were just making tea, they were just making tea there. And uh, my daughter, um, Charlotte's got like at home this little like kawakawa balm that's made on Wahiki Island. It was like really good. And you put it on like, if you've got any like skin things going on. And and so after going to the course, I like took Charlotte out to this big valley sitting off to the park near where we live and we were looking for kawakawa. And we found some because it's everywhere. And we, you know, it was really nice to connect for her that, right, these, these are the leaves that go into this farm that she loves playing with. And came home, made a bit of a tea. And then I'm looking out my kitchen window and there's literally like a kawakawa bush right outside my kitchen window. I just never even knew what it was, you know, <laughs> and I'm running around trying to find this, this native plant. Um, and the whole time it's literally like a meter from where I spend half of my day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Just because I didn't know, uh, I didn't have this have this knowledge or understanding of what that plant even was, which is well, you'll find this interesting. So, specifically, kawakawa for me has been a really exciting one, and not because of the leaves at all. I don't use the leaves at all because everyone already knows them, and they they and they use them, and that's great. But what a lot of people aren't aware of, so you you know, you can eat kawakawa berries, little orange little orange sticks. They're mildly sweet. If you eat the flesh of the berry, they're full of seeds, little black seeds. If you and if you if you weren't to bite down on those seeds, that would be a you know, mildly sweet berry. But as soon as you bite down on those sticker seeds, you make you know they it's like they get that peppery kick that you would from kawakawa, and that's great. And I was I would always 
restaurants had, had asked me in the past to try and, and harvest kawakawa berries and always seemed like an impractical berry to harvest because they're, you have two like two, 200 berries on the bush. The bush is laden with berries, but they'll only ripen up one at a time. So it always oh, wow. seemed like an impractical berry to harvest. I'd go out for an hour and I'd come back and have maybe 10 berries and they're half eaten by birds. And I just never really liked doing it. And then one day, one of the gin distilleries I worked for asked me if I, they wanted a kilo price on kawakawa berries. And I was like, oh, I'm not interested. And he said, well, we're going to dehydrate them anyway, so it doesn't matter if they're green. And as soon as I realized that, it became a far more practical berry to harvest. So I can harvest kilos off a bush in one go. It's far more practical. And, and the quality of the spice is really good. It's an amazing spice. It's like a, it's much more uh, rich and um, layered than, than the leaf is. It's got like a, yeah. I always call it the New Zealand Christmas spice. It's got like a ginger nut touch to it, mint. It's, it's really nice spice. And so that's something I really like talking about is the fact that everyone knows kawakawa. Everyone uses the leaf. Most people know about eating the berries, but it's just that you can pick the berries green and turn that into a spice that not many people are aware of. So it's just one of the things I like. I really like to promote and chat about. And then there's that's the male flowers too, because kawakawa is dioecious, meaning meaning that male and female are on separate plants. And the male flowers have also have potential to be used as a spice. So it's uh, one of the yeah, an example of one of the, the things which I think that we can expand on the native spices. How would you turn those berries into a spice? Would that be like a mortar and pestle thing? Would you sort of like grind them up and... and... Yeah, fresh. You could use fresh green kawakawa berries. It's pretty intense. But I, yeah, I just chuck them in the dehydrator and then they turn into these black skinny little sticks full of just... I mean, the flesh of the berry sort of just disintegrates into nothing and you just get this stick of black seeds. Yeah, and then, then I, I personally just grind them up in a coffee grinder. So my, my tools are really just a dehydrator, a coffee grinder and, and an ice cream machine. And I've recently ordered a still, so uh, I'd like to start mucking around more with capturing hydrosols and essential oils and blending those into ice blocks and ice creams and just showcasing because a lot of the flavours don't work with cream and I'm just trying to find new other ways to help carry flavours and I can imagine, uh, yeah, essential oils and hydrosols being being a useful tool. I've also really, really loved, I would love to buy a, a freeze dryer, but, oh, geez, it's like eight, nine grand for a Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so but that would be awesome. I'd love to get a freeze dryer as well. And just having new tools and new ways to help showcase flavors to people. Fantastic, Mike. I hope there is a I hope there is a freeze dryer in your future at some point. Too, Not many on Trade Me, but um, <laughs> one day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've talked about the foraging, which I really encourage people to go on one of those tours. Um, if someone is not in the Kapiti Coast or in Wellington to do the Botanical Gardens tour, you mentioned that Plants for a Future website. Are there any other resources or places you would send people if they're interested in learning more about foraging and just appreciating the plants that are that are around us already yeah, or on their own yeah. land? I mean, the books that I would just generally go to, this uh, foraging books by Andrew Crow. It's like a field guide. I've got one of his ones. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, he does really well on native plants. Yeah, that, that's a great starting point, that one. There's also another book, uh, it's like The Forager's Treasury by a lady called Joanna Knox. That's a nice one. Uh, for if, if In regards to seaweed and mushrooms, I always recommend a couple of PDFs by a, a guy called Peter Langlands in the South Island. He's probably the most well-known forager. He wrote up a couple of foraging books and, uh, well, PDFs, which you can order from him. His company's called Wild Capture. Uh, and I specifically found the seaweed and the mushrooms useful. I mean, they're not the best photos and they're not the greatest uh, ID pages themselves. But what he does is he just focuses in on the top 15 varieties that 
you're going to find and you, uh, and that's just a really nice way to hone in on it especially mushrooms well, i mean seaweed's the same there's hundreds of varieties of seaweed around the wellington coastline and you can just get lost in in in, in all of it so just having a way to narrow it down and then he talks about the you know lookalikes as well so found those to be really useful useful tools personally like i've read that i've got one of the andrew crow books on native plants and there's some good, there's some real quality photos in there and a lot of drawings of things, um, but I still have this trepidation. Like, I don't know if it's just bias from my upbringing or the way, you know, what I've been surrounded by growing up, but I have this kind of fear of like jumping into like picking something and trying it that uh, I'm going to eat something wrong and it's going to be poisonous. Um, do you think we, you know, is that like, is there an overestimation? Of, with you know, Say this with any disclaimer, but uh, do we is that fear inherent and, and, you know, too much has that been bred into us or, or, you know, should we be really careful or, or are there kind of things to watch out for or advice you'd give for people to kind of get past that, that, that fear that, that certainly I've been, I've had about engaging more with edible mm. native plants. Good question. Uh, I would say that there are definitely plants out there that can kill you and or seriously injure you or what's the word I should make you, make you very sick. But that's no reason to stop playing with the plants. I mean, do your research and 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 have a play. Let me put it this way. There, there's lots of plants that you find saying saying that they're poisonous. You'll see in one book it'll say they're poisonous, and then on in the next book they're being used for medicinal purposes. Uh, so it also has a, there's also a question of quantity. But there are some plants that you should stay away from. For example, hemlock, and that looks very similar to wild carrot seed. And if you start with wild carrot, so if you start mucking around with leafy greens you should definitely know about well hemlock and it's not that hard to learn about it it's basically highlighted in every book hey watch out for hemlock so uh yes there are poisonous plants out there and you should be cautious but it's not rocket science it's it's all uh it's all doable i think but i, I have poisoned myself um i've got a nice little story about yeah uh, if you're open to it how we, uh the, the, the one time i poisoned myself I was working for the gin distilleries and I read somewhere in the uh, database for, I think it was Maori Medicinal Plant Use database that uh, koi koi was used to be used as a, a quinine alternative or a tonic alternative for malaria. Uh, it's really bitter, really bitter in the bark and the leaves. So I told this to the, one of the gin distilleries. I was like, oh, that'd be awesome. How cool would it be to make a New Zealand tonic water? And so I grabbed some bark and some leaves and I boiled them up into a, into a broth. And then uh, when I really, sh- oh, and then I bought a bottle of gin and I bought a bottle of tonic water and a bottle of soda water. And I didn't, at the time, it was a long time ago, I didn't really know what I was even, what my goal was or, or what my plan was. Just started, I wasn't even trying to figure out what I wanted to taste. And what I really should have done is just had some soda water and put some in and decided whether or not it tastes like tonic water or not. And that should have, that would have been the end of it. But I, uh, I, I mean, I had, after my experiments, I maybe had two shot glasses of this brew when I really only should have had a teaspoon of it. And about 20 minutes later, my guts just flipped out. And, and they were, I felt crook for about three days. I think I did my gut biome some real damage. And to be honest, ever since then, I still struggle now with, with fatty foods, so fish and chips is sort of, I really have to pay attention what I'm, how much I'm eating. But maybe that's just getting old, I don't know. So that's, that's the only time I've really poisoned myself. Um, yeah, you could definitely hurt yourself. But at the same time, I see koi koi in, in some roanga concoctions. And so, yeah. I mean. So it's, um, yeah, like you're saying, 
it's the uh, dose, right? Like if you boil it up and, and all that's getting into the water and then you you know, had the two shot classes on it, that, that could be quite a quite an intense dose of, of whatever's in that plant rather than if it's a medicinal use, it might be used pretty sparingly or, you know, yeah, just different parts of it. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a really good thing. It's probably the same with lots of different essential oils. You can totally overdo your, your you know, your gut biome. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that, Mike. That's a really important story and really useful, I think. So. Thanks, man. Um, and I, we would love to talk to you about the more about the Otaki project. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And and so where we left that um, previously in the conversation, we we're talking about you know the speed dating, securing mm. funding, uh, and you know you come out of this this food hui uh, with the with the council, you found some funding, and so tell us about the space and uh, and what the what the transition has has looked like. Yeah. There. Okay. Okay, Otaki College has an amazing horticultural facility. It is really impressive by any standard. It's silly. It's weird that they had this had this facility. It was locked behind closed gates. Uh, hadn't been they hadn't taught horticulture there in five years. Uh, hadn't really been looking any good for about the last ten years. The problem with it is it's too large. It's too much for the horticulture teacher to run himself to expect him to run it in his private time. So we we realised there was the opportunity to justify it. Uh, a funded role. Um, so we, we acquired funding for a 20-hour-a-week role. So I started working there Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays during school hours with students on a one-on-one -on -one mentoring basis. So they'd come out and work with me as I have a timetable like all the other students, and every hour a different student comes out and works with me. Wow. Which we start, well, we actually, to begin with, I started the first three months, I just worked by myself because the work was too, too dangerous to having students involved. Because the students I'm dealing with too, it's an intermediate. So most of the kids that I deal with are between 10 and 13. Seems to be the older kids are a bit busy with their exams and, and um, yeah, NZQA tickets or whatever. That I generally get the, the younger kids coming out to work with me. So, yeah, started started working on renovating it. It's, it's, it has a massive big greenhouse with heat-sensitive automated sides. It's got a big packing shed. Uh, it's got a second greenhouse with heated beds for raising seedlings. Uh, we have outdoor veggie. Uh, we've got um, established orchards. We've got multi um, medicinal corner. We've got a pizza oven corner. We've got bees. Uh, it's it's really impressive. It's also I, I should just cut it. Sorry to cut in there, Mark. I was just going to say you shared photos and videos from when you first started, and I feel like you might be overselling it. Like it, like it was quite. It needed a lot of work when you, when, oh, you yeah, yeah. when you first got there. Like there was piles of you know who knows what and there were weird chemicals that you had to find a way of disposing of and there was i don't want to undersell how much of a, a, a transition this involved and how much work this would have been for you at the start yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was a bit it was quite intimidating being uh standing there by myself with no one to bounce ideas off no one to make decisions with um so yeah it, it definitely was i guess the, the the tip there is just to make a base which which was the greenhouse for me the greenhouse was the first step it was winter when I was working there too, so I was always cold and the packing shed's not very nice. So, yeah, turn the greenhouse into a nice space and then that's your go-to space at the beginning and then cool. slowly spread out from there. But there was always a juggle for me between working on infrastructure and, and renovating things and growing veggies at the same time so that people are already seeing some, some something coming out of there. But you don't want to spend too much time on the veggies because you're just taking time away from building and renovating and painting and whatever. Uh but yeah, it was a real mess. It was a real mess, I have to say. Uh, I guess the issue has been there's been quite a few community groups had tried tried getting in there over the years, and and that 
that uh, was potentially counterproductive because they'd get in there, they'd have a go, they'd get some funding from somewhere, buy some stuff, throw it in, and then it would fall apart. And then, then two years later, another group would have another go and they'd get in. And so you'd have all these weird sort of projects stacking up on top of each other and just clearing it all away and making a clean slate was, yeah, it was a lot of work. But I I was, I really enjoyed it. I loved the project. Um, it was, you could see, see the potential. Uh, I've enjoyed working with the students. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've noticed, yeah, just building over the over the last eight months, building relationships with the students. I mean, now they're, they're really getting into it now that the place is looking nice and uh, like they come out before school or they come out at lunchtime and they're looking for jobs. Um, these are students that I don't even have on my my schedule. Uh, so it, and it just seemed like a really nice place. So you can, you know, at lunchtime when they're out there, you'll hear them squawking and running around and that's been really nice to to give that to them. What um, what were some of the first... Uh, so you set up the, the greenhouse as a bit of a base. Um, mm. What were some of the first things you you grew, or what were the, the what were some of the yeah the first crops that you well that you went with? Well, what I should have done is done a soil test to begin with, which I didn't do uh, straight away. I did that in connection to the earthworkers course. I never even thought about doing a soil test, uh, but somewhere along the lines on the earthworker course, they mentioned that you should do one and that they will analyze the tests for us. So I did that. Bit further down the track than I thought than I should have, and so, uh, and I realized well, we we discovered lead poisoning in, in some of the beds. And we did we, we did manage to narrow it down. I'm really happy that we we could um, sort of solve the problem. But at the time we didn't know, so uh, I couldn't grow any. I decided I won't grow. Well, before we then can actually narrow down where exactly this lead's coming from, we won't grow any root crops. So it was all uh, pretty basic to begin with, just uh, lettuces and and. Um, Fennel. Basically, I started. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was just th- grabbed whatever seedlings I could get my hands on, and whatever whatever grew, whatever grew well, kind of went in the ground. And oh, I guess what I'll mention is I went on another course. I went on uh, Roebuck Farms. I went on Jody Roebuck's salad mix course for a couple of days, and that was a really useful course as well, where I learned a lot about salad mix production, and I found that really interesting. Um, so now a lot of our focus, not a lot of our focus, but say half of our focus is on salad mix production. And that's, I found that to be really a nice way to, to engage with the students because each job that you do is only a small job, like uh, growing microgreens or growing pea shoots, that every job just takes five minutes and, it's, uh, and you see the results within a couple of weeks, which is useful too for the students to see that sort of feedback. Uh, and then you're creating an added value product putting it together, it's another little job, mixing the salad together. And then we sell, now we sell veggie boxes to the teachers. Uh, so we do about 10 veggie boxes a week. Uh, but at the beginning, awesome. man, I, was, I don't know, I was just throwing stuff together, whatever grew well. I mean, brassicas seem to germinate well. So all through summer, I had a ridiculous amount of brassicas that were just getting hammered by um, by the white, white butterfly. Yeah, it is what it is. How do you keep it fun for kids like do they just naturally you know uh, enjoy it or are there are steps that you take to keep it fun for them because sometimes with farming spaces you know if you've got to plant 144 seeds in a cell tray and then you've got to do a whole lot of trays like you can feel like it can get a bit a bit tedious for some people but are there steps that you take and and uh, you mentioned the microgreens one which which seems really valuable because you know you get that instant feedback and you can start to see them sprouting pretty quick uh but th- are there other things that you do to increase that engagement factor. And I guess I'm asking for like maybe people who've got kids at home and they want to see if they, you know, expose their kids to gardening and see if they can, um, see if they like it and they become interested in it. 
Well, I mean, the quick quick turnover is good. That's that's always a great great starting point. But I found so basically what happens is um, I have these kids come out to me for the first time that I have had maybe half an hour with them, and in that time they have in the first session they're going to decide whether or not they want to come back. So I feel like I've got this half an hour time to sort of blow them away with nature. Uh, so I give them the tour. And uh, I've noticed along the lines that yeah, immediate sensory stuff is the best, so smells and tastes. So I've got a lot of herbs in our garden, um, so I give them the whole tour of the herbs, and that's always an easy way to, to spark their interest. Uh, and one thing I've also done in maybe the last three months is I've set up ice cream, my ice cream production in the packing shed, uh, which, has been, which has been nice. So uh, what I do is I make one ice cream a week with the students. And the rule is we have to use one ingredient from the garden in the ice cream. Uh, so, I mean, we've made chili and chocolate. because We've got lots of chilies growing in the greenhouse. We made basil ice cream. Uh, we've made walnut and honey with our own walnuts and our own honey. Uh, made mint and chocolate chip. Uh, grapefruit, feijoa. Next year, next week, actually, when we go back, I'll be making rhubarb and rose geranium sorbet. Um, so that, that's a really easy way. I mean, I go around with the students. I talk to them about all the herbs. We try the, try try a couple of different ice creams, and I can then I can show them the you know the spices or the herbs that were used in the ice cream. So yeah, that seems to be a good approach to it. I found. But yeah, you're right. There, there are a lot of tedious jobs, and and you have to. But I'm, I've only got each student for 45 minutes, so it never really gets tedious. By the time they get out to me, and I've told them the job to do, it's about half an hour for them. So you can't really go too wrong with half an hour. But uh, you have to watch out that I don't, I don't, yeah, bore them or, or give them something too too tough. Uh, and now that now that I've been getting used to the project, they come out in pairs as well. So uh, that that can be quite a useful way to for them to spend time. Um, or to not get bored is, or to not find it too tedious is when they're working with a mate. My four-year-old boy, uh, Connor, he loves to help out in the garden. And, yeah, there are there are times when he's just thriving in it, you know, when we uh, open up a compost bin and we'll get some of the compost out and we just look at all the worms and all the all the little bugs uh, frittering around and, you know, he'll love that experience. And then, you know, I'll kind of bore him to tears once I say, right, we're going to shovel, you know, wheelbarrow loads of this compost around the property and he'll, he'll stick with me for a little while but probably get bored after a bit. But I love the food as a vehicle for engagement and that's something I'll definitely try to build into um, my own experience with the kids in the garden is right saying what can we make out of this or what can we turn this into or how can we turn this into an ice cream sounds like such a fun way to experiment um, do you have a yeah. good like ice cream recipe that you would be um, oh, open well, to sharing yeah, or uh, link to? so I get my base mixes from it's a company called salt and straw okay. they, they put out a book not too long ago uh, which has all of their base mixes in it, and that's really that's a really good resource for me. Perfect. And they've got their coconut base mixes and their sorbet base mixes, um, and so yeah, it's basically just uh, milk, cream, milk powder, sugar, glucose syrup, and xanthian gum. So there's no egg white in the stab- in the, as a stabilizer. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I use. And you find the that the fat and the and the sugar can be a nice carrier for for these flavors to to come through uh, yeah. and i guess it would kind of like soften them and, and and things as well on some of the some of the herbs so that some things if you know on bitter and nutty flavors it works really well sour and spicy not so well cream can smother them but then you've got other options so then you could use a sorbet or uh, 
see, for example, if it's a sour flavor that you want to get, let's say uh, a boysen, you want to make a boysenberry ice cream. If you just mix boysenberries into cream, it's not you're not going to get that sour twang that you're looking for. So what they do, and you'll 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 know this, is they make like a compote and or a swirl, and then they mix that into the ice cream in the last minute, so that you've still got that jammy that jamminess in the ice cream, and then when you lick it, you'll get that sourness from the jam as well as the creaminess. So you've got you got different ways to to try and lure the flavour out. Uh, nice. So that's another that's not another thing that I find fascinating about it all, and it helps with the keeping it creative and interesting for me is yeah trying to find different ways to to showcase a flavor it doesn't have to be cream but um yeah you've got lots of options one other thing i wanted to ask you about was you actually um have found some really fun ways to engage with the students too and you mentioned one that you've just started playing with but which which was like the kind of saturday night tasting mm. events um which you which you may run more of in the future where you actually had kids playing musical instruments and kind of hosting this kind of event where the public could come along and try different flavors. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to find ways to connect the community more to the college, to the college gardens. Cause it is tucked away a little bit. It is behind, you know, we do lock the gates at night. So I have been, I have been calling it a community garden, but at the same time, we don't open it up all the time to the community. So it's been, it's been a weird one trying to figure out how is this going to work in the future and what can we, how can we, how can we connect more to the community and, I was thinking, do I open up the, the gates on Saturday mornings to, to the general public, to for volunteers, I suppose, but really it's also just to show people around and I spend, you know, I'll, I'll dedicate, I'll give everyone 20 minutes to show them, give them the tour and tell them my plans and whatever. And then, yeah, I realised now that this, so I turned the greenhouse into a bit of a classroom, so half the space is growing space and half of it's a classroom. And that, I realised, works really well. The students like it. It's a nice space, especially now that we're getting into the colder colder times. And I realised I'm sure I could hold an event there. I was just trying to think of a way to do it. And I thought, okay, it has to be at night time because during the daytime, it's the, the, the temperatures are too unpredictable in the greenhouse. Uh, and at night time, I've got a gas heater so I can make it cosy in there. Uh, and then, yeah, so I started to realise, okay, let's do let's try ice cream tasting. And not, not everyone's interested in going on a two, three-hour foraging walk and, and hearing about plants, which just, just can be quite um, educational, but not necessarily everyone's cup of tea, but everyone likes trying ice creams and, and everyone, I'm sure everyone's curious about native flavours. So started hosting these these events and realised that it's a great way to connect the community to the college because I can work with the students. Yeah, so I have the student band playing music I, in the future. I haven't done this yet, uh, but I can have students being the, the waiters, being the MC, I suppose, in the future. I don't know. Uh, so that's that's been really good. Uh, they work really well. It's a great event, a um, lot of fun. Uh, and I just yeah added another one yesterday actually, so um, that'll be good. Such a such a cool way to let uh, your students kind of show off what they've been working on too, if they want to invite family along. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also like the idea. I mean, the space is really good for having younger kids come in. So what, um, one thing that I've noticed with the garden, really in the in the last couple of months, is that it's a great space to facilitate kindies, play centres. Uh, young school groups to bring them in, spend a few hours there. They go picking fruit. They look at the pick veggies. Uh, we can even crank up the pizza oven. We give them ice cream, uh, and they love it. They, the little kids they get to climb up the ladder and, and they get to try figs and, and apples. And we got we got a really wide variety of fruits there. So that's been really nice. And I've realized, and I've been just humming and hawing about ways that we can do more towards dealing with these younger kids. Um, I, I really like the idea. I think the facility is fantastic for school holiday programs. And uh, and now I was thinking in the greenhouse, it'd be great to, I've been chatting to 
to Kate, the, the, the learning support coordinator. She's basically my contact at the college. Uh, but she happens to be a drama teacher as well. And I thought it'd be cool to put on like a show in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. We, then we can uh, move move the tables and chairs around in there and and I just put beanbags and, and pillows and things in, in there and then, yeah, have some sort of some, some sort of show and, and we could work with the students and the drama department um, or the, the music department or uh, to create some sort of shows for the kids. I think it's uh, it's something that makes me so passionate about this kind of urban farm uh, movement, which the Earthworkers Program and the For the Little Bees Trust are trying to support is bringing these vibrant green spaces into urban environments so it's not tucked away uh, in rural areas, although that's obviously necessary too, but, but that we can have some of these spaces in amongst our urban centres and cities where your play centres and kindergarten groups can come and visit them and, and school students can engage and, and see a whole diverse mix of plants growing and, and see the potential and try the flavours and just be exposed to to all the stuff. So uh, kudos to you, Mike, and thank you so much for your hard work in that, in that space. Um, one question I was going to ask on this was if someone's listening to this and they're in a different part of the country and they drive past a spot maybe every day and they think, gosh, that that is an underutilized area where where something like what you've done could happen. What would you recommend they do? How would they best kind of investigate that or, or look into that? Yeah. I would say the Earthworkers course was great. That was a really good starting point for me. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad that that was the first step I took. Uh, and I, I, a lot of the worries which I had when I first started was yeah the intimidating the weeds. I was so intimidated by the weeds. I thought I have to put weed mat on this stuff to get to get started and kill it all, and then have a, a good starting point. Um, and that really wasn't an issue at all. I was so surprised how when you put down some compost on top, you, like I was thinking, all right, I'm going to have to buy cardboard and I'm going to have to lay it out. It's going to be and make it look really nice. Uh, but it wasn't. Didn't need to be like that at all. It really was just do a soil test and that you really get that one out of the way first, uh, go on a course to wrap your head around it all. And then um, oh, at the same time, start making compost. Um, good starting point as well. Uh, and then good healthy seedlings going in and uh, quantity, um, really thick planting uh, is, is, is a good starting point. But um, I'm sure there's other elements that you need to cover too. I mean, like, I mean, I, I, this was the funded project. So, uh, the, the question of, of getting an income is was not so important, um, but I'm sure that is important for a lot of other people. So I don't know about that side of things. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't think. Um, I don't think I could still make an income off what I'm doing over there at the moment. Uh, so I sh- probably shouldn't say too much about that side of things. But there is certainly more of a. I see more of a movement towards. Um, funding for situations like this as much as it can be yeah. still very hard there's there seems to be more money flowing into the space and more people seeing the value of these kinds of projects right um yeah, so really, you're right uh that's another really interesting point is that there is yeah funding opportunities i think if you can show if you can show how how it's good for the community that's a really important factor no yeah i appreciate your time so much mike I like the diverse range of topics that we covered, and I really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a funny story. Eh? I, yeah, no worries. Uh, it, yeah, it has been an, an interesting ride, uh, yeah. and I'm still really excited to see how things go for me. Yeah, I love that theme of creating creating space to play, creating space mm. to be creative uh, and explore your interests. I think something that 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 we can all benefit more from, right? 
Um, we, we give a lot of time to our careers and to our jobs and um, it's really a value to, to have space to, to pursue um, things that make you happy. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, Mike. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. Uh, take care and uh, best of, uh, wish you the best of luck with the future with the foraging tours, with the ice cream making, with uh, getting your freeze dryer and with, uh, with Old Lucky College, your project there too. Uh, yeah, cheers, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and check out our previous episodes for lots of other cool info like this and head along to our website, goodyoucando.com to subscribe to future updates. You can also follow us on Instagram at goodyoucando.